this is Swordplay. Alex, on or around this date in 1926, popular Texas megachurch preacher J. Frank Norris shot and killed a man in his office after the man threatened Norris. Don't mess with Texas, right, Alex? J. Frank Norris. You know what? It's too bad it wasn't Chuck Norris. Why is that, Alex? Because Chuck Norris doesn't need a gun. He just points his finger and says, pow. (laughs) Oh, man. You know what they say, don't bring a gun to a Chuck Norris fight. Gracious. Look, hey, the crazy thing is, and maybe even more surprising, is your boy, J. Frank Norris, was acquitted of first-degree murder with this. It's crazy. Wild, wild stuff. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. This has been a challenging epistle, but I feel like we've had some good discussion And we've got some good questions on our way. First off, we want to remind the listener to read 2 Thessalonians. Uh, Read the whole book. It's only three chapters. Maybe take you five minutes a chapter, 15 minutes total to read the whole book. This will help you to engage in the conversation we're going to have today, the questions we're going to ask. So feel free to go read it. Read it twice. Read it three times. Come back and listen to the podcast. Now, our first question we have here is from verse 1. And Paul has this prayer for the word of the Lord to be spread rapidly and to be honored. Uh, Some translations say to be glorified. What does it mean, Nick, for the word to be honored, the word of the Lord? Uh, My English standard has honored, but it does have the footnote uh, glorified. And that's literally what the word means there that Paul uses to be glorified. Um, And the connection that I made was uh, to this was in Acts chapter uh, 13 where this word is used there as well and maybe it shines a little bit of light on what uh, the word means Uh, Acts 13 verse 48 when the Gentiles heard this they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed and so this is what was happening there um Uh, in Antioch of Pisidia there in Acts 13. It could mean that Paul desires for the word of the Lord uh, to be respected, for the gospel to be respected. And when the gospel is respected, as happened among uh, the Thessalonians, Paul says there at the end of verse 1, people will be obedient to the gospel. Um, Of course, that doesn't always happen. Paul's going to say not all have faith there at the end of verse 2, but That's one way of looking at it, but there is another way of looking at it, right, Alex? Well, the way I would look at it would be more along the lines of glorification of the Word being just another way of describing what happens when people believe the gospel. So here's an interesting note that if if the preterists be right, we got into this last week and the week before, or the last two episodes, I should say, if the preterists be right, then you could look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, and where it talks about destruction and being away from the presence of the Lord. If it's talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, well, 
The Old Testament teaches clearly that God's presence dwells in the temple. So if the temple's gone, you're away from the presence. Here's where I'm going with this. If God's glory left the temple in Jerusalem, where does it dwell now? You could hop over to Ephesians 3.21. You could see that God's glory in Christ dwells with the church. And when people answer the call of the gospel, they gain the glory of Christ. That's what we saw last episode in chapter 2, verse 14. So because the Christian is now a part of the new temple, uh, this is again in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. First uh, Peter chapter 1, uh, chapter 2 gets into this as well. We could say that the departed glory of the old temple, as we might be hinting at in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, that the glory received by those who answer the gospel, as we saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that Paul is praying for in chapter 3, for that glory to continue to grow and to spread. So you could say this, you could say Christ is glorified by his saints in his new temple, even when the old temple is being destroyed. So that glorification continues as the church grows, as the church works for good in this world. And that matches up with Paul's prayer in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 12. So there might be a theme of glory in Christ's church and where God's glory dwells now being spread through chapters 1, 2, and 3 of 2 Thessalonians. That's my thought. No, oh, for sure. That's, um, that's a thread there that uh, seems to be appropriate in uh, the whole book of Second Thessalonians. Um, well, I guess that's going to bring us to our tough text tough for text. today. Uh, because here in verse 1, uh, the, one of the first things that Paul writes is, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may... Uh, speed ahead, be honored, as happened among you. Pray for us. But here's the question, here's the, the tough text, is does prayer really work? Uh, someone may be listening right now, and they're praying about something. It just doesn't seem like their prayers are being answered. So, uh, yeah, what what should we do with this uh, question, Alex? If if Paul is asking, pray for us. What about someone who maybe maybe their faith in uh, prayer is wavering? Well, I would say first of all that that's common. It's 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 okay to wonder these things about one's prayer life. I don't know about you, but prayer. My prayer life is probably the the area of my spiritual walk that could use the most work. And uh, I know I'm not alone in that. And I could point to you books full of lots of reasons why your prayers might be hindered or you might seem like your prayers aren't being answered. I'm going to offer up three. And these three are not comprehensive. But the reason I offer these three explanations is because they're explanations you might not hear of very often and so it just adds a little bit more to the to the picture so first i would say uh, prayers can be delayed prayers can be delayed uh, what would delay a prayer uh, well if you look at the book of daniel in chapter 10 verses 10 through 14 you'll see that daniel's prayer was technically answered right away 
God sent an angel to go speak to Daniel to give him an answer immediately. But the angel said that he was delayed for three weeks, for 21 days, because he was engaged in battle and he couldn't get away until the archangel Michael came and backed him up. So there could be things going on in the spirit realm. There's spiritual battle that we just don't know about. We don't have insight into. So prayers can be delayed for things unknown in the unseen realm. Second explanation, uh, prayers may warrant an investigation. Prayers may warrant an investigation. In other words, uh, if there's something serious going on that God needs to look into, it may take some time to complete an investigation. What I'm thinking of is in Genesis chapter 18, verse 21, God comes down himself to personally investigate the outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah that had come before him. And you know what he says? He comes down and he says, you know what? If the outcry is according to what has come before me, uh, I'll figure it out. I will know. So he's, he's going he's gonna to get to the bottom of things. He's going to get all the information before doing something um, big like wiping out Sodom and Gomorrah. Another thing is that prayers are sometimes collective in the sense that God may want to answer your prayer collectively with a group of other prayers that are related or interrelated. So he, God may want to take care of something on a bigger level that encompasses many problems. Here's what I'm thinking of. Um, when God rescues the Israelites from Egypt, we talks about this in Exodus chapter 2. It says that he hears them, he takes notice of them, um, and he, he's coming to, to rescue them. Uh, I'm thinking of the avenging of the Christian martyrs that we see when the fifth seal is broken in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Um, they're asking for vengeance. They're asking how long until God takes vengeance. And God says, just wait a little longer. There's still more martyrs that are coming. So in that sense... I would say uh, sometimes you have to wait for the collective answer of God to come for your prayer and other prayers with you. So here's my bottom line. Don't give up on prayer. He hears you. Stay faithful. Uh, Luke chapter 18 speaks to this. And I would just say it's important to remember that we don't live in heaven. Uh, we're getting to heaven, but sometimes we have to first go through hell. You might wonder, well, where'd I get that from? Well, it's, it's not a pithy one-liner from a movie or, or a book. It's from, the, it's from Acts, Acts chapter 14, verse 22, where it says, through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So that's sort of my thinking right now, trying to give people a bigger picture, uh, take a step back, maybe see the unseen. Nick, what do you think? Yeah, the, I, amen to all of that. Um, and I would just add that, Obviously, the Apostle Paul believed in the power of God through prayer. He wouldn't ask Christians to uh, pray for him and his, his co-workers in the gospel if he didn't believe uh, that God would act mightily through prayer. Uh, and he regularly asks uh, those that he writes to, uh, for them to pray for him. Ephesians 6, verse 19, Colossians 4, 3 and 4, uh, both to the Ephesians and the Colossians, he asks them to pray for him. Uh, he believed that 
when Christians prayed, it helped him in his work for the Lord. He says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 11, you are helping us by praying for us. And so uh, many people, he says, would give thanks to God because God blessed us because of your many prayers. And so examples could be multiplied of God answering the prayers of those who prayed in the Bible. Uh, but again, uh, Alex, I'm, I just want to unite with your exhortation to not give up uh, in prayer, to stay faithful. God does hear and he does answer uh, those prayers. Um, I guess one other thing we could say is uh, sometimes the answer that we're looking for may not be the answer that he gives. Um, and uh, you may have heard the various answers that God gives. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he says wait, and sometimes he says I'll give you something better. Uh, I think that can be added in here as well. But um, uh, don't stop praying. Amen. Amen. Well, Nick, let's move on through the letter. You get to verse 2, and Paul has another aspect to his prayer, and he's concerned about certain wicked and evil men. Um, who does Paul have in mind with these wicked and evil men? And is there any connection? Because he says after that, not all have faith. Um, can you give us some insight into verse 2 and the wicked and evil men? Yeah, I suppose there are any number of groups that Paul could have in mind. Um, certainly in his work, he had opponents internally, those uh, in the church itself, uh, who were these warped date setters who had come in among the Thessalonian congregation and shaken the faith of many of the members uh, concerning the, the return of Jesus and Jesus coming back. And He's going to deal with some of the fallout from that uh, the deeper we get into chapter 3. It could be internal opponents. It could be Judaizers who would be external opponents, people outside the church. Um, he's been harassed and harangued by uh, groups like that before. And um, when he first visited the city, it was apparently these who uh, harassed him. Acts 17 talks about this, uh, beginning in verse 5. Or it could just be kind of general, unspecified opponents, those who were hindering his continued missionary efforts. And uh, so he, he may not be pinpointing this exactly, but um, yeah, any, pick them really, any one of these uh, groups could be the wicked and evil men that uh, Paul has in mind. And uh, in terms of the connection of not all have faith, yeah, not all have the faith, uh, the faith that Paul holds and shares with the, the faithful there in Thessalonica. Uh, but uh, that's kind of what I see going on here. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. Um, you know, Nick, I, I think there might even be a fourth possibility here. Yeah. When we looked at the book of Titus, I remembered us talking about Titus chapter 1 and how at the end of that chapter he says, there are some who profess to know God, uh, but by their deeds, they deny him. And so it may be that, okay, not all have faith in general, right? You spread the gospel, you never know who's going to receive it or who's not going to receive it. But what if there are people in the congregations who are like these insurgents who have come in with under false pretenses? Uh, Jude would say they've crept into uh, the church, they've crept in among you. Uh, that's Jude verse 4, 
uh, what if it's these guys that, who, who are coming in to intentionally gain influence so that they can destroy the church from within? They say they're believers, but they're really not, and they know they're not. And so it's, it's not a struggling believer. It's an actual uh, spy, if you will, sent in to be the double agent. Um, maybe these are the evil and perverse men. I, I kind of wonder, back in Acts chapter 20, when Paul's talking to the elders of Ephesus, when he meets them on the island of Miletus, in verses 29 and 30, he starts weeping and saying that he knows that wolves will come in among you, will rise up among your own number, perhaps hinting at the eldership, and will lead many astray. Um, there seems to be this, this element that, you know, who, who would send these people in there? Uh, uh, you touched on it a little bit. could be these Judaizers. could be them sending people in to try and uh, bring people away from the faith, sort of a attack from the unbelieving Jews, but a guerrilla warfare attack. I don't know. Um, another possibility in my mind. Any thoughts, Nick? That makes sense. Um, yeah, that's that's good stuff. Um, let's uh, press forward here and talk about verse 3. I guess we should back up to chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul talks about how these Thessalonian brethren are enduring persecutions and afflictions. So in verse 3, he talks about um, essentially, he's praying to the Lord that uh, the Lord will establish and guard them against the evil one, protect, they would get protection from the evil one, uh, I believe your translation says. So how do we reconcile those two things of, on the one hand, enduring persecutions and afflictions, and on the other hand, protection from the evil one? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, Paul seems very confident that they will get the strength and protection uh, that they need from the evil one. But he's already admitted, like you said in chapter 1, that they are undergoing serious persecution and affliction. So how do you make sense out of that? I would say that perhaps what we're looking at in chapter 3 is not protection from physical harm, but rather protection in a spiritual sense. And here's why I think that. I think that because in chapter 2, he already talked about this man of lawlessness coming. And he's coming uh, with power. And he's going to get this power that's uh, coming from Satan. And we know Satan's a powerful spiritual being. And it says as a result of this power, there are going to be those who are deceived. And God will, God will cause a delusion for people to believe what is false. Why does he do that? It says it's because they refused to believe the truth. They instead chose to rejoice in wickedness. So the true Christian doesn't make that choice. The true Christian instead has chosen to believe the truth, does not take pleasure in wickedness. It's that Christian that has a special protection put over them so that they can have strength to endure tribulation, trial, affliction, persecution, and protection in the spiritual realm so that they are not swept up in the delusion um it's kind of like some of the the ideas you see even in the old testament about well the being marked out for protection so that you're not caught up in god's wrath or judgment 
I think it's Paul's prayer. I think it's Jesus's prayer, Matthew sixteen thirteen, uh, Matthew six thirteen. Uh, protect us from the evil one at the end of that prayer. Let us not be led into temptation, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some translations say the evil one. So that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking this is a spiritual protection. What are your thoughts, Nick? Well, I'm reminded of something you said just a few minutes ago about how we we don't live in heaven yet. Um, and and sometimes we have to to go through hell on earth, as it were. And, and the, the good reminder of Acts 14 and verse 22 about one of the things that uh, Paul and Barnabas preached to the church in um, Lystra, when they went through their Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, they told they preached to them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, and so yeah we're not we're not promised um, freedom from harm, uh, physical, bodily. In fact, it's it seems as though there's a thread in the New Testament where it's expected. Um, but uh, I like the approach concerning this spiritual protection aspect and and protection from the evil one in spite of whatever bodily, physical persecutions and afflictions we may be going through. Right. Jesus said, uh, don't fear him who can destroy the body, but rather him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's right. Well, Nick, we're getting into the bulk of chapter 3 and the main topic at hand for at least this chapter. And we're going to talk about the unruly brother. The first thing we need to layout is what does an unruly brother look like this is introduced in verse 6 he's going to talk about other things that we might call church discipline or uh, disfellowship and there's some things that might even sound harsh Nick can you unpack this for us starting in verse 6 what's an unruly brother yeah, the text says, uh, Paul is exhorting them, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. That's my English standard. I believe the New American Standard says unruly. It's also got a footnote that says undisciplined. Um, the word that's used here has to do with refusing to work. Uh, the scene seems to be that these these uh, brothers and sisters among the Thessalonian congregation, they've, they've quit their jobs, and they're just kind of kicking back, waiting on Jesus to come back. Um, just waiting on the Lord, as it were, right? <laughs> um, and so what happened, though, is that these brother, these brothers and sisters, they weren't really engaging in holy behavior while they waited for Jesus to come back. They were um, doing nothing, and that do-nothing philosophy had resulted in them wandering off into sin and all kinds of unchristian behavior. And so this is now Paul writing to correct that. Um, so that's what I see here with the idle or the unruly brother. Well, Nick, should we disfellowship everyone then? who doesn't work? I mean, is that what he's meaning when he says keep away? Man, that's a good question. Um, the word that's used here, it could mean full-blown shunning, right? Discipline exercised by the congregation where they are cutting off 
this idle brother um, in order to correct their unchristian behavior. It's a call to repentance. That's what church discipline is, is really all about. Um, in fact, one word that I came across while I was looking at this was the word ostrac- uh, ostracization, to ostracize these brothers. On the other hand, though, um, perhaps in mind is the just um, withholding of close personal fellowship as opposed to just a full-blown no-contact order, right? Um, sure. And so it's not a full-blown shun, um, but whenever we're going to have a conversation uh, of any depth, um, the conversation is going to gravitate toward... Um, now, when are you going to repent? <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, either way, the injunction, it's congregation-wide. Every member has to get behind this. And um, and so that's those are a couple of ways of looking at it, if that makes sense. Well, Nick, what if that's too harsh, though? Like, what if someone can't work? Let's say they're, they're disabled. What do you do then? Man, that's a good... <laughs> uh, uh, Here's the thing. Paul isn't addressing people who cannot work. Um, uh. These seem to be people who are able-bodied. Uh, these are people who, uh, members of the church, who can work, but they're they're not willing to work. Sure. And so uh, Christ, he's always called us uh, to take care of those who need to be taken care of. Um, uh and so when it comes to someone who cannot work due to disability, we, we certainly want to take care of them. Uh, they're part of the body of Christ, part of the family of God. But at the same time, uh, the freeloader is exhorted, you need to get to work, all right? If you are able-bodied, um, get to work and, and, uh, uh, and, and have something that you can bring to the table and share with your brothers and sisters. Um, yeah. Yeah, that that tenth verse. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's pretty firm, and yet it's still yep. an apostolic command. I like what you said about withholding uh, close personal fellowship. I think that fits in well with the context because Paul will say, uh, "Don't treat this brother like an unbeliever. Still, still treat him like a brother." But. Uh, if he's not going to work, don't let him eat. So you can almost imagine somebody who is going around from house to house each night of the week, getting a free meal, not working, just going around being a busybody during the daytime, getting a free meal at nighttime. You can see in the book of Acts, I mean, eating with brothers and sisters from house to house was an important aspect of their fellowship. And if Paul is saying, don't let this guy participate in that aspect anymore, uh, yeah, I mean, that would probably shake him up. I mean, this is a big a big part of what they do from day to day and how they encourage each other. So maybe not full-blown disfellowship, but a withholding of that aspect of fellowship. You don't get to share this fellowship meal with us each night. You don't get to enjoy what we're here to share because you need to start working so that you can share. Well, appreciate your thoughts, Nick. I think this is bringing us now to the lightning round. Lightning round. Well, Nick, we're going to try to get through six questions. We're going to give ourselves 
uh, around one minute to see if we can blast through it. So here we go. Um, I'm going to push start and then you you go, okay? okay? On your marks, get set, go. Verse 9, Alex, does a minister have a right to be paid? Uh, yes, yes, he does. He can choose not to exercise that right uh, like Paul did, but he does deserve his wages. Uh, Nick, what is a busybody? Verse 11. This is someone who's more than just idle. They're actually going around sticking their nose into people's business where they have no business sticking their nose. Um, they fill their time with gossip, other unhelpful activities. What does it mean to work in a quiet fashion? Verse 12. Well, looking at the original language, it just means silent. You're not going to run your mouth at work. You're not looking for trouble. You're going to be a support for yourself and others. Uh, the shepherd of Hermas, apostolic father, used the word to contrast uh, somebody with an angry temper. Nick, why would Paul be concerned of their growing weary in doing good? Well, doing the Christian thing, taking care of the freeloaders, like that can take a toll on somebody, uh, Christians, um, being taken advantage of, that, that can do that. And when that happens, Christians can tend to withdraw from a benevolence ministry. Does verse 14 describe disfellowship or some other form of church discipline? Definitely some form of church discipline. Seems like it. There's nothing Christian about allowing a brother to uh, continue in an exploitative lifestyle. Nick, did Paul write just the last verse himself and why? Seems like it. Um, there are all kinds of false letters that were circulating about 2 verse 2. We talked about that a couple weeks ago in, in that episode. Paul did have an amanuensis. He would sign, though, the last few verses in order to show that it was him. And that's the end of the lightning round. All right. <laughs> that was a minute and 40 seconds. It felt like 23 seconds. <laughs> 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 end of the lightning round well we're getting to the end of our letter here end of the chapter and Paul does exhort the Thessalonians to remember that the Lord is faithful uh, he encourages them to keep the apostolic commands he tells them to get busy doing work he tells them to do good he tells them to obey and yet Nick we spent a lot of time on the first two chapters of the epistle talking about eschatology and uh, do we see the final coming of Jesus in these verses yep. what is all this mundane day-to-day -day instruction at the end of the book have anything to do with the eschatology in the first two-thirds of the book yeah it's that's a good question whenever there are those who engage in kind of this doom and gloom end of the world prophecy junk the Christian has the obligation to stay busy uh, to, to do their job, do their work, and also doing the work of Christ. Uh, I'm reminded of in 2012 when the Herald Camping prophecies were really big. He had predicted that the world was going to end on May 21st, 2012. And then when that date came, he, uh, he revised it, recalculating, right? <laughs> and figured it was actually October 21st, 2012, when the end of the world and Jesus coming back was all going to happen. So his followers literally quit their jobs for him so wow. that they could devote themselves full time to this camping heresy. 
sold their home, sold their possessions, and basically lived in the streets just waiting on Jesus to come back. Hmm, sound familiar? <laughs> and I, it, it's, I think that's what happened with those in Thessalonica. I think that's what was happening here. They were idle brothers just waiting on Jesus to come back, not working, perhaps even lax in their Christian duties. And so to this, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, says, get to work, right? Um, and don't stop praying. Uh, stop freeloading. Stop living off the government cheese in a van down by the river, <laughs> right? Stop mooching off your hardworking Christian brothers who haven't quit their jobs just to wait on Jesus to come back. And so I think that's, I think that's how these two things meet with this mundane day-to-day Go to go to your job, do your job, do your work, keep praying, and, and all that. With the final coming and the eschatology aspect of this, look if if all we're doing, if all we're supposed to do is wait on Jesus to come back, I think it's N.T. Wright who talks about how then there's this embarrassing gap between when we are baptized and when Jesus comes back or we die, whichever comes first. Ooh, ouch. The, yeah, the the Christian ethic and the Christian doctrine and the gospel speak into that that middle part from when we are baptized to when we either die or Jesus comes back, whichever comes first, and we are to live in a certain way. That's how the mundane and the eternal meet on the in the rugged realm of reality. Uh, does that make sense? Absolutely. The rugged realm of reality. I like that. I'm going <laughs> to put that on a plaque, put it in my office look at it every morning that's what we do we wake up and we get busy working in the rugged realm of reality it's not heaven yet i see that with these freeloaders there's perhaps something under the surface as well um let's face it nick there's going to be people in every generation who are going to freeload right yeah it doesn't really matter what the scenario is um if eschatology happens to be a good vehicle for the freeloader to drive in order to get what they want, um, then they'll use it. They'll use it. But it, it's just one of any vehicle that the freeloader in any generation is going to use. This specific problem seems to be with the heart of the manipulator and maybe not even the doctrine of the manipulated. Mm. Manipulators can take any doctrine, whether it's true or not, and use it to their advantage. That's what a manipulator does. That's what a freeloader does. And we don't want people to walk down that path, uh, get caught up in this darkening of the mind and this hardening of the heart. We want our brothers to be better than that, to rise up to the occasion. And that's why we say something. That's why we exercise uh, this church discipline. Um, it's out of love. It's to help each other be better, uh, not to be... Uh, harsh or mean or hateful we still love our brothers we just want them to be better that's all well nick we see in verse 16 that there are more prayers to jesus right is it still okay to pray to jesus oh yeah yeah it still is <laughs> we, you know we we closed out uh the second chapter with uh with something on praying to jesus i kind of broke down a little bit of the history there of how this issue has arisen in uh, our particular uh, uh, congregations in the churches of Christ, and you know, I I think I'm I'm of the persuasion that 
you may be missing a key dimension of prayer if you're not praying to Jesus. And I say that because um, it's kind of like it's kind of like if you have a relationship with someone, but you never actually talk to that person, um, that relationship can atrophy. Um, if you're not in conversation, like if, you know, with, with my wife, I'm married to my wife, but if I never talk to her and if I, if I never share my heart with her, because for some reason I think I have to um, talk to somebody else in order to communicate to her, um, you know, go through some third-party mediator, Instead of just actually talking with her, I think I'm I'm missing something in that relationship. Um, that's just my personal feeling about it. Sure. Um, does that does that make sense? You disagree? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't disagree. I mean, here's one that I always remember in Acts chapter eight, verse fifty nine. As Stephen is being stoned to death, he lifts up his head to the sky. He cries out to Jesus, and he says a prayer. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Right. And it's almost comical to think of Jesus saying, sorry, Stephen, no can do. You should have asked the Father in my name. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, that's what it... So this is an argument about semantics, really. And I don't mm. think the semantics actually affect one one person's prayer uh, one way or the other. I mean, mm. uh, I know in Romans eight twenty six it does say the spirit can intercede for us. Uh, in the way that we ought to pray. Um, so we have some reliance there. We have this safety net called the Spirit that helps us in our relationship with the Father, with the Son. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an, it may be, we may be looking at a distinction without a difference. And yeah. hopefully it's not that type of an argument that is causing... Um, any kind of rift in any one of our congregations or in the relationships of our uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. And one more thing, Nick, what happened to the four blood moons? Wasn't that <laughs> last year or two years ago? Was it? Yeah, I think it was 2016. And that was old John Hagee. He was a big proponent of that. And okay. What the, the Jews go back to Zion and all that. I don't know. Hagee, Harold, I can't keep them straight. I just wanted yeah. to know what happened to the four blood moons. They came and went, apparently, and we're still here. Go figure. All right. All right. And so is John Hagee, by the way. He's still here. <laughs> <laughs> How old is that guy? Uh, that's a good question. I know. Um, Should have saved it for of, the lightning round. Yeah, they they <laughs> trying to pass the reins on, I think, to his son, Matthew, but... I gotcha. I don't know. I don't know. Well, Nick, what's our uh, next book? That's a good question as well. I don't know if we <laughs> talked about it. <laughs> um, actually, I was hoping you would remember. I think we're looking at Second Timothy next. I think that might be right. Or was it Obadiah? That's Old Testament... I don't think we're doing Old Testament yet. I think we're doing New Testament. Well, All right. it'll be a mystery. It'll be a mystery to our audience. Tune in next time to find out. Tune in for the mystery episode. Maybe we should open up a, a, a voting poll. And people can tell us what book they want to hear next. Well, that's an idea. That's a good uh, reminder, though. If you have any questions, go to, uh, well, email us at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. And we'd and, be happy to answer your questions. Yeah, we'll read those on air and answer them on air. And also, check the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. 
Search Swordplay. Download all the episodes to your particular device. And, um, yeah. All uh, right. Review it as well. And that'll help get the word out about us. Absolutely. And uh, we are getting pretty close to our 1,000th download. So we're almost at 1,000 downloads. So you Who's can, it going to be? Who's going to be the lucky winner? I wish I could track it. Who was actually the 1,000th download? Give him a prize. Have an autographed picture of Nick and I. <laughs> the audacity <laughs> all right nick well it's been another good episode of sword play we'll see everyone next week for the next book that we're going to cover thanks for tuning in to another episode of sword play